RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. So we're all wondering where our politics is right now. And I thought it would be a good idea to speak with someone who, who knows from experience and also now um, keeping an eye on it, covering it on her website. And I'm going to give you the website. It is the New Zealand Centre for Political Research, nzcpr.com is the web address. And this is where you'll find Dr. Muriel Newman, I'm sure you know that name, who joins us from the far north. Muriel, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Paul. It's lovely to be here. All right. I want to range around a bit because you've been around, you've seen things from a lot of angles, and this is election year, and a lot of our listeners are thinking hard about this year and and really what to do. What are the options you know, who do I vote for? And maybe that is a, dis- a different kind of decision now compared to legacy where, you know, the choices were pretty clear and the patterns were pretty clear and well established. Um, and then there's the whole um, entity of government and where it's at right now. And there's the culture, which has gone a particular way. So if you're up for a chat about that and anytime you want to refer to anything on uh, the nzcpr.com website, feel free to do that. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so helicopter view right now. Let's start there. How, how do you see New Zealand, the New Zealand political landscape right now? Well, I think it's fair to say because it's election year, then the major parties in particular are all converging on the centre ground because, as we all know, that's where elections are usually won or lost. Mm. But I think what we have to do is when we look at who we want to govern the country. I think an important point to think about is which of the major parties would do the least damage to New Zealand. You know, that seems quite bizarre because, you know, normally you think, well, which one do you like the most? But I think what we've experienced in the last um, three three and, and then another two and a half years is something that makes us very concerned about the future. And so, you know, you might not like one of the main parties, but if they're the one that's going to do the least harm, then maybe that's one the one you should be supporting. And when you, again, look further at the main parties, you know, they do lie on the left or the right of the political spectrum. Those on the left believe that um, bigger government and more regulation is the way to a better future. And that, of course, means higher taxes. And the other ones on the right of the political spectrum, it's more limited government, it's greater freedom and personal responsibility, lower taxes and less regulation. And so they're the sort of hallmarks of the left and the right. And of course, the minor parties fit in um, around those as well. Yeah, but some would say, and many of our listeners would probably say, that's kind of how it was or how we thought it was. But really, where are the points of difference between, well, the two major parties? They seem like just a uniparty. There's so little between them. And we've seen kind of evidence of that. Maureen Pugh. um, And we could talk about strategies behind that. Uh, But it does seem for the first time there is no really discernible difference. You kind of think that it doesn't matter which way you go. You're sort of going to get the same, how it feels. Yeah, I think that people have to bide their time. What normally happens, especially with opposition parties, is that they don't want to reveal their policy agenda 
too far out from the election period because otherwise it gives the government a chance to discredit it or steal it. <laughs> and so I think that at the moment they are um, both, you know, as I said, converging on that centre ground. And I think you just have to wait. Uh, at the moment, there'd be a lot of, lot of listeners out there who know that they either support or don't support Labour because it's very clear that no matter what Chris Hipkins says now about um, you know, his policy bonfire, a lot of those policies that he thinks are unpopular will be waiting in the wings to be resurrected if he manages to form a government with the Greens and the Maori Party. Um, so, you know, people will know, yes, I like them or I don't. And if you don't, then you have to wait and see what um, National actually reveal in the election campaign itself. And we're all hoping, to be honest, Paul, that, that it's some pretty good policies and pretty uh, ones that will address the main problems that New Zealand now faces. And as you say, there's been no hint of what they're going to be. Um, so I think we just have to bide our time. Yeah, I mentioned Maureen Pugh and the leader of her party, her leader, kind of threw her under a bus. And it seems, again, to a lot of people, including me, that there really wasn't any danger in supporting her at all because most people, you would hope, um, you know, are reasonable in their thinking and it's okay to ask questions. She wasn't making a pronouncement on some sort of belief. She was just saying, well, you know, fess up with some some data and some, some information to support. And that, that was the... Um, uh, I forget the politician that she was railing against at the time, but it's on the left, you know, support your argument. Even that could not be tolerated by her, her leader. And, and that left a lot of people scratching heads. Yes, I, I mean, us too. We, we looked at that and thought, you know, what the heck is going on? But if you step back one, and you remember that National not long ago, you know, experienced um, a leader who was essentially crucified by the left, and that was Judith Collins, um, where you know the mainstream legacy media dived into her as well as the politicians and made you know her life it must have been a living hell to be honest. Um, so you can think to yourself that maybe national has learnt from that, and they are now desperate not to allow any cracks or chinks in the armor to appear. And one of the hot-button issues, of course, is climate change. And so when Maureen Pugh asked, as you say, what is a completely relevant question of James Shaw, you know, show us the evidence uh, for your statements, um, you know, they closed down on her, which I think was a terrible thing to do. And, um, you know, if that's the way they're going to play it in the future, then they will lose a lot of support. But I suspect it was a strategy uh, just to not open themselves up to criticism in an area where they hadn't actually put out their policies. So, you know, it's not, not an excuse for them because it was dreadful. And what we need right now, to be honest, is politicians coming out and defending free speech because right now I think many in this country feel the, the weight of this sort of woke agenda that's pressing down on us and every time anyone opens their mouth they feel they're going to be crucified mm. so you know we are in a very very difficult position as a country and that certainly needs to be addressed by the political parties as we go towards the election 
Yeah, and just staying on that, the Maureen Pugh thing, just for one more moment. The thing about that was that she was sort of put through a public struggle session that sort of reminded you of, you know, uh, uh, another era, let's say. And she had to come out and lose her personal dignity in a way by kind of, you know, confessing that she was wrong. You know, she she had to sell herself in front or sell herself out in front of everybody. And that's, I mean, you wouldn't do that to you. Your colleagues, would you? No, well, I mean, that's what made it so bad. And, um, I mean, I think everybody who listened to Maureen, you know, reciting the lines, knew that in her heart she almost certainly didn't believe what she was saying, but, you know, she was asked to do it, so she did, uh, to keep the peace and, and also to stay as an MP because, you know, everybody's got choices, haven't they, when they um, come up against uh, a problem. And um, so, but it was it was the way, yes, it was the way the leader um, hit on her. Whereas, I mean, some people have said that um, Christopher Luxon lacks experience with a very critical media, which the political media, legacy media is. Um, and he probably could and should have dealt with it entirely differently, you know, brushed it off. Oh, that's boring, you know. Um, we leave her to be, you know, we leave her be. She's asking a question, legitimate question. Let's hear what James Shaw's got to say. You know, he, he, could have, could have, he, he could have piled in himself. He probably would have done himself a favour. That's right. Absolutely. But as I say, I think that they are, uh, National is playing to a strategy at the moment, and that is not to dive into those uh, difficult areas. And there's quite a lot of them now, a growing number of them, where if you say the wrong thing, you know, you, you do get resoundly attacked. And so, um, yeah, uh, doesn't I mean, excuse what they did. They but, could, you they, know, I think um, yep. it's life. They could have reframed that. I sound like some sort of uh, amateur armchair political uh, consultant here. But they could have um, reframed that into, well, it doesn't matter if you don't like the question or not. We're a free country, man. You can ask anything you want. And I defend that until you know the last stand. He, he could have, he could have said that. He could have turned it into a win for national, exactly. And I think that that is the sort of thing that we would expect from a good, you know, major opposition party. And I think it was quite disappointing for many Kiwis that that actually didn't happen. And he came out of it looking bad, and the party looked bad. And, um, you know, I'm sure they would have lost votes because of that. But, however, you know, that's what they did. So all we can do is hope they pick up their game and, um, you know, uh, put it right, so to speak, as we get closer to the election. It's the putting right that counts. I remember that from somewhere. I know. (laughs) (laughs) LV Martin, that's right. Um, And then that would have been an opportunity for David Seymour to come out and say the same thing. But unless I miss something crickets there. You could have made a huge deal out of that. Yes, I can't quite recall what David did. I mean, the ACT Party itself is a party that does stand for freedom. You know, the the early um, logo used to be freedom, choice and personal responsibility. And I don't think they've deviated too much for that. Well, um, I don't think he was fully on board for COVID freedom, so maybe he knows that's lurking. Yes, well, that that was another dark stain on their record as well as everyone's record. 
you know, when you when you look at the way Parliament has changed, it's um, from my day. So I left in 2005. It's very different now. So back in those days, if if people personally as an MP felt strongly about a particular issue, even if the party didn't like you saying it, you still had the right to be able to say it and defend whatever the issue was. Nowadays, it seems they're whipped into line. And, um, you know, the fact that nobody from Parliament went out to meet with the protesters, you know, camped outside was a shocking thing. You know, they were campaigning against the mandates, illegal mandates, as we as we probably knew at the time. And later it was just, you know, it was verified by the court. And yet nobody actually had the guts to go down there and say, well, what are the issues? What can we do to resolve this? How can we help? And that's, of course, what parliamentarians are meant to be here for. So, yes, it was a dark stain on everyone's record, that. Well, from your experience, and, okay, 2005, it was 15, just over 15 years. So that's not that long in the scheme of things, but it's a bit of time has elapsed. So can you imagine you being uh, pulled into supporting some sort of universal declaration of, of, of all parties signing up to not talking to average New Zealanders on the lawn of Parliament. How, how do you get something like that over the line? Look, I think it goes back to this um, threat of being labelled. So right now, you know, there's certain labels that political parties seem to be terrified of. One is being called a racist. It's probably the easiest one to. Yeah, but but that's lost all. That's lost all its its punch now. I mean, it's so overused. Yeah, but but nevertheless, they they don't want to be labelled as a racist party. They don't want to be labelled as climate deniers, which goes back to the Maureen Pugh incident. And the other thing was they didn't want to be labelled as anti-mandate. And for some reason, and all of them, of course, had to be vaccinated, didn't they, to be allowed to to go into Parliament anyway. I don't know about and, that. There might have been a bit of wiggle room there because um, of the status of Parliament and not barring entry to any elected member under you know, any circumstance. Mm-hmm. So I think that there might have been a bit of an out for them there, but I can't tell you off the right. top of my head exactly what applied there. But but many mm-hmm. of them would have. So they're buying in already, right, By just by doing that. Well, this is right. And, and when, you know, the whole sort of thing came up of do you want to be vaccinated, you can bet your bottom dollar that a whole lot of them would have preferred not to be. Um, but again, it's, it's like every other New Zealander, you know, if you're faced with a choice, you either get vaccinated and you can be still part of our caucus and come to Parliament and do X, Y and Z, or you're going to be isolating at home for the next several months. Um, you know, their arms would have been twisted. And so that became one of those those labels that political parties didn't want to get. And um, so it led to all sorts of bizarre outcomes. I think it was shocking. I think it was a shocking indictment of Parliament itself as an institution that there was no group of MPs who went down there and met with those protesters to try and work it out, you know? And here's the, the other thing, Muriel, is that they were all beautiful people. They were. I know. I know. I know. I know some of them. You know, some of them are my best friends. Literally, they're the most amazing people around. These are not. You don't treat people like 
good people well, like that. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you could see it. You know, they had flipping gardens going. They had little schools going. They, they had clothing swaps going. They had all sorts of things going on. Well, it showed that they were really good people who had been forced into a terrible situation. I mean, some of them would have lost not only their jobs, but their homes, their relationships, you know, their families. For God's sake, all Parliament had to do was put out a hand of support and friendship. You might have had trouble resolving the actual nuts and bolts of the issue, but the thing was that at some stage, the mandates were going to be lifted. They were not mandates for life. And so what they could have done is sat down with them, worked through it all, explained the reasoning and the timing, and hopefully that would have allowed the thing to, um, to you know, the, the protesters to be able to go home knowing that there was a plan, that this was, they weren't being isolated and tram- trampled on as, as a lot of MPs seem to be doing to them that they actually were real New Zealanders, real people with real concerns, and Parliament had taken them seriously, and it was going to be addressed. That's what they wanted. And instead, they were treated like dirt. It was just terrible. Chantel Baker told me, and she was there live-streaming the whole thing, and, and uh, it's incredible to talk to because she was there for virtually all of it. She said, she told me, that uh, she thought if the Prime Minister or second-in-command, but at that level came out and and addressed them, everyone would have gone home. Mm, I agree. We we were, you know, we were saying, you know, (laughs) talking to the sort of TV or whatever, you know, just go down and see them. (laughs) Um, Because that's that's how you defuse uh, situations. Those people didn't want to be there for weeks on end. But, you know, you, you're in a, in a situation, you're in a terrible situation. Your life has been turned upside down. A lot of them would have known what the, the sort of medical science was saying as well, which would have made it even worse that the, the vaccines did not stop the spread of the virus. They'd have all been aware that before the vaccine came along, then, you know, wearing PPE and, and doing various other things actually stopped the spread of the virus <laughs> because, you know, they were working in, in um, difficult situations in healthcare and so on where, you know, it was important that there was no transmission. So there were other alternatives. This was the thing. This is what I never understood. If some people did not want to take that vaccine, number one, why not get another one that is acceptable? And that didn't happen. Or take the risk, which turned out to be infinitesimal to the average healthy person. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And natural yeah. immunity has been proven to be so much better. Anyway, we could go on about that. Um, mm. we, we talk anyway, about that. there were options, right? Yes, there were options, exactly. exactly. And, but Parliament dug itself into a hole and it wouldn't stop digging. And that was the problem for the country, actually. Take yourself back again to when you were in Parliament and the relationship you had with the media, because what we've just been talking about, at that same time, the media were portraying, framing those people and anyone who supported them um, as um, sort of right-wing, ultra-right-wing influenced, possibly funded from overseas, nefarious groups coming together. Um, you know, they were even doing news stories about how people couldn't find car parks. Who cares about car parks when you're uh, battling freedom? So um, the media seems to be working in that space as well. When you were there, 
What was the relationship with the media like then? Do you think there were there was more honest reporting, more um, uh, you know uh, adhering to some of the uh, older principles uh, in in the reporting that you were involved in and saw when you were a politician? Oh, absolutely, definitely. I mean, we used to refer to the media all the time as the fourth estate. You know, they were there to act as a public watchdog and defend the rights and freedoms of New Zealanders and hold government to account. And, you know, and so sometimes, of course, you you didn't necessarily like what they wrote, um, but they usually uh, were very balanced. I remember in the very early days of, of the climate change stuff when uh, Helen Clark's government started introducing, I think, um, you know, plans to join up to the Kyoto Protocol was one of the first um, sort of domestic legislative things that, that, were, that came onto the agenda. And the media was quite careful about, you know, listening to the politicians and why so-called global warming was so bad. And then they'd go to someone else, uh, another scientist, to, pre- to present the other side of the story. And so the the news reports were very balanced and that was hugely important because, you know, that allowed people to make up their mind about things. And now, of course, it's completely uh, changed. I think the Public Interest Journalism Fund made things a lot, lot worse. Um, but also, you know, the Jacinda Ardern herself had a charisma uh, that seemed to attract a lot of the media. And, you know, they were sort of wooed away with Jacinda Mania at the very beginning uh, when she was first elected. And I don't know whether that entirely vanished, <laughs> strangely enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Public Interest Journalism Fund, uh, a lot of, you know, hate back on the government for, you know, buying media is what people say. But here's the other thing. Those media organisations, if they knew their core function and, and the principles that you know have evolved over a long time um, for fair and balanced reporting they could have refused that you know mm. so that, that oh, look, you, yeah hey you're absolutely right the, the the problem was it had come on top of as I rem- recall there was a big chunk of money was funded to the media uh, right at the beginning of the lockdowns, the COVID pandemic. And then the wage supports went there as well, as they did to other businesses that qualified. And so right at the beginning, the government was there putting their hand out to a media where, you know, advertising would have dried up almost instantly. They, the the then, government course, spent 120 million out of the prime minister's department on advertising for COVID in the first year. Yes, well, well, that, I was going to say that. So then, on top of all that, they had an enormous advertising budget to support them as well. So, I think it's one of those situations where you know people hope, or they would have hoped that um, you know that people don't bite the hand that feeds them. I think that's what the government would have had in the back of their mind. And so I think that a lot of the media who'd accepted those other payouts from the government, um, I don't think it was a black and white issue, should we accept the Public Interest Journalism Fund or not. The the requirements that we objected to were sort of buried, weren't they? They weren't right up front. 
And so, you know, you suddenly found the media uh, supporting outrageous government programs um, instead of questioning them and interrogating ministers, you know. And so the consequences came a bit later. Um, but, yeah, you, they didn't need to accept them. I think a lot of them, when they saw the public backlash, a lot of those media uh, groups, I think, got very frightened by what was going on and how um, how strongly the public felt about it. And probably if they'd have had their time again, I suspect some of them wouldn't have accepted it. It's fair to say that didn't age well, right? It hasn't aged well. No, that's right. All right. Yeah. Okay. I- Okay, so in election year, people are thinking about uh, the political system and what we've talked about already kind of points towards where where I want to go now. Uh, You know, we're used to a stable democracy in New Zealand, all of us, you know, in our living memory. It's been pretty stable, pretty predictable. Okay, there have been ups and downs, but they haven't been that much. I get a sense, I don't know, maybe you do too. Um, that people are starting to question the very political system. Is it working for the average person? And if it carries on like this, where does it end up? Is that a fair thing to be thinking in an election year? You know, fit for purpose, basically. Is it? I think it is. Um, At the core of that is the public service itself. And, of course, we've always been told that the public service is fiercely independent that whichever government comes in, um, you know, they will do all they can to enact their policies fairly and honestly and all the rest of it. But you can't help feeling that the public service is now being politicised. And, you know, it was interesting. I just um, saw a report this morning that the public service commissioner, Peter Hughes, has um, defended the public service. He, he's done his own report. Um, it's a result of the change in legislation that they had in 2020, the new Public Service Act. And he's asked to do a report every three years. And so he he chose, I think, last week to present his report and, and talk to a select committee um, about it. And one of the things he said, which I thought was quite chilling, uh, was that he's talking about how the public service itself is now looking at having regional commissioners. So you'd have a, a public service commissioner in, in various regions around the country. And that the funding decisions would go from the government, you know, saying, well, this is X amount of dollars in our budget for, I don't know, transport or whatever. And then the decisions on how that's allocated would go to these regional commissioners. And while that seems, you know, probably quite a reasonable um, idea, you know, we probably quite like decentralisation of decisions. We certainly liked it with our politics and our health system before Labour came along and um, centralised them all and ruined them. Um, And same with Three Waters, of course. We like decentralised water run by our councils, not not run by government. But anyway, um, and one of the things Peter Hughes said was that the decision makers in these regional commission groups would include iwi. And I've been thinking about that because one of the aims that Labour had when they became the government was to empower tribalism, really, to um, treat the treaty instead of a document of equality, to treat it as a document of partnership with iwi, 
uh, introduce co-governance uh, right throughout the public sector, which they have done. And now, of course, as I said, it's gone into uh, certain policies, uh, reforms of the politics, uh, the health system and, and water is the, are the three um, major ones that everyone knows about. And, um, and now it seems that all government uh, decision-making in the future um, is going to be made by groups, including iwi, which, of course, will funnel more money into their pet projects because they act on behalf of their people and not on behalf of the public good. So, uh, And that is a, a politicisation of the public service that we have never seen before in this country. We've seen little hints of things going uh, becoming a bit different, but never something as blatant as that. And that really worries me. So is what, what you're saying is the, the, the core system is fit for purpose, but when you start to um, have uh, situations like you've just explained where power is, well, it's taken away from the centre, but it's not given to the people necessarily. That's right. Um, and that's the trouble. It, it's become politicised. And it's going into ideological agendas, and that's got nothing to do with the good of the public. It's the good of certain sections of the public, but what the public service should be doing is looking out for the public good for everybody. And, um, you know, you just have to look at the health system. I mean, I was horrified the other day to learn that now uh, what they're planning in health is that um, if you're on a you know, you go to um, the system and, and you're put on a waiting list. You get um, a number of points depending on, you know, how bad your condition is and how old you are, I suppose, and a, a variety of other things. And now apparently they're, they're adding more points if you're Maori. And so, um, and, and the person with the greatest number of points is the one who gets prioritised. And so what's going to happen is the whole system, it's become an apartheid system where treatment is going to be based on race and not on clinical need. I mean, which Kiwi signed up for that when we voted for uh, Jacinda Ardern's government in 2020? Well, not me and probably not many no. of our, our, our listeners. So you get a situation there where you've got two people, let's say Pakeha, a Maori person, with the same ailment, ba- basically the same medical need, but one is going to get treatment ahead of the other, right, on that system? Yep. As each month goes by, then the points will be changed. So presumably if, if you've got a, um, an issue that's going to get worse as time goes by, then, you know, your points go up. And so at some stage you get to the top of the queue. And, um, but and you're you almost dead. Your operation. <laughs> you're almost dead but, at the top uh, yeah. of the, the queue. And if, and if you're almost dead and, and still not the favoured group, you're still probably going to be dead. That's right. Yeah. It's shocking. It is absolutely shocking. And, you know, you go back to the media. Where are the media reports on this? This is what gets me. It's, it's the key crucial issues that are going on right under the noses of Kiwis who are not aware of it, and yet it could affect them, their mother, their grandmother, their granddad. You know, it's so important, and yet the media are not discussing it. They're not revealing what's happening. They're not interrogating the government as to why this is going on. You know, how come we've now got this apartheid system? When did New Zealanders vote for it? You know, it's just awful. So no one yeah, was you asked. asked about, you know, is the public service fit um, 
you know, for use. And in some ways, you know, it is because it's probably done a very good job over, you know, generations. But in other ways, it's changed and it's not. And it's a real, real concern about what's going on now. The politicisation is a real concern. So some bold politician, again, let's say it could be Christopher Luxon, um, he, he, there probably wouldn't be a downside for the public anyway in him saying, well, when we get in, we're going to pull apart and reinvent the public service. But then you've got the public service offside with you, right? Yeah, but I, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the public service who are very concerned as well about what's going on. I mean, I read somewhere that, you know, they're having to sort of swear allegiance to the treaty in all government departments now. You know, they're bringing in this um, thing that, you know, it's a partnership between Maori and the Crown. It's, it's a huge issue. And, um, and one of the ways the, the heads of government departments are being asked to um, provide feedback on how their staff are going, you know, how many of them are now learning Māori, how many can sing a waiata, how many have been to visit a marae, all these sorts of questions. They're all on documentation that's put out by the Department of Crown or Māori Crown Relations, which is the group that is pushing through a lot of this stuff. And um, and so, you know, there'd be people in those government departments who simply do not like all this, and um, they would probably be relieved if there's a change. Right, so maybe not as much resistance from within as you'd think. Possibly. There'll be a lot of um, very vocal resistance, right? It's like a lot of these issues, you know, people think, oh, goodness me, there are so many against X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. And when you boil it down, you know, it's five people who've got very loud voices and megaphones yeah. and, and um, they're strong on the internet, you know. And so, um, yeah, you've got to um, be quite careful um, about that because oftentimes the, the numbers who are, you know, taking a different view from what you think common sense is, they're actually quite small but very driven. Okay, I noticed there's, uh, I haven't read the piece, but uh, you mentioned on, on the website that we talked about uh, earlier, and I'll give the uh, name and the address of that website again. It's nzcpr.com, New Zealand Centre for Political Research. I say I see that you've touched on police failing to protect vulnerable women or a vulnerable woman uh, in extreme danger. Um, are you talking about what happened in Auckland with the Posey Parker thing there? Yes, I, you know, I watched... Um, her live stream of that event and I just found it was shocking and chilling and awful. Um, you know, she she said at um, interviews afterwards and even at the time, you know, she was frightened for her life and afterwards she said she feared that if she'd have fallen down then um, she would have been stomped to death and you just have to watch watch the live stream to see that she was not making that up and this is New Zealanders right this is Kiwis and they are so vicious um, and it was horrible and you wonder how on earth can society have got to this stage how can these people have been whipped up into such a frenzy that they behaved like that to a woman you know and and so yeah you you sort of think about 
the collapse of civilization, and you think to yourself, did we see a peak of that in Albert Park that Saturday morning? Well, again, no meaningful political response that would address any of that. I don't think anyone, I didn't see any strong-worded statements from anyone. I saw Christopher Luxon again mentioning him, you know, um, make a comment about Manama Davidson's cis white men and violence, okay? But what you've just described, I saw that live feed as well, and it was chilling to watch. You were looking into, into eyes that you don't want to look into. <laughs> you know, um, mm. there was kind of nothing there. Again, you, you know, you've you got to save your country at some point. No one says anything. Is that just fear? When, when it's obvious they're screaming in the ear of an 80-year-old woman in a blooming wheelchair. You know, that could be a grandmother that they're doing, mm. you know, but still reluctant. This is why I think people wonder if the political system is working anymore. Well, you see, what should have happened as a result of that is that, you know, opposition parties should have fired parliamentary questions to ask why, to find out why it was that the police were there but did not step in. I mean, we've all seen protests in the past where the police form a cordon, right, between one lot of protesters and another. It's what they do. They keep peace and they keep people safe. And the Minister of Immigration, Michael Woods, he had made a statement in the week leading up to uh, the the, um, meeting in Albert Park. He'd said that the police had assured him that they would be there to keep the peace. And so I think that's what the um, Posey Parker and and her organisers, that's what they expected as well. But the police were on the outside, from what I understand. And people were calling them and saying, come and help, you know, step in, because it's out of control. And they didn't. Now, under whose instruction did they not step in when they should have? And that's what I'd like to know. And there should be opposition members asking those parliamentary questions. Now, it takes, uh, I've forgotten, is it 21 days? No, that's an OIA. So it takes a few days for the answers to come through. But the answers should be coming through and people should be putting out press releases or the media used to pick up on those parliamentary answers and make them into stories. And, um, but in this climate, who knows? But that that information needs to come out there because that was not right. And if that was under the instruction of a politician, we need to know that as New Zealanders because what we do not want is ever a repeat of what happened that day. So can you imagine the police commissioner taking it upon himself because it would have to have gone to that level, surely? There would have had to have been some discussion with the area commander on down to figure out how to handle this. Could you see a scenario where a police commissioner could make that decision um, which goes against obvious common sense policing, it would have to have come from higher, surely. Well, you know, you can't say, can you, but you can speculate. And um, it it just seems so nonsensical. You know, what happened that day should not have happened. The cops should have been there. It wasn't a, it wasn't a huge barricade. You know, they had a barricade up which got um, pushed down pretty well straight away. I suspect they weren't expecting the numbers. So from what I read, there were 200 and 200-odd had turned up to hear the speech, and then there were 2,000 who turned up to protest. Now, as soon as the police saw the numbers, they should have brought in reinforcements and gone in there and uh, formed a cordon. 
you know, that that would have been the common sense thing to do when you saw how angry the crowd of protesters, you know, protesting against it were because they were banging their whatever they were banging and, and making their noises with their sirens and all sorts of things. They were doing that right at the beginning. So there was loads of noise and you could have seen what potentially, if, if you're experienced in all this, you'd have seen what was coming. Yeah, and the um, police station is only on College Hill, so two k's away as the crow flies. You can be there in a car in mm. probably two minutes. Um, th- that didn't happen. But, but look, the, the thing is, uh, I think we've got to remember that, you know, the police do work under instruction. So, you know, the ordinary cops on the ground probably thought what was going on was pretty horrible and they might have wanted to, to do something. Um, but it's got to come down from on high, doesn't it? So, oh, yeah, I'm not criticising um, the officers yeah. there. I mean, no way. Um, it's an impossible That's situation right. for them. Yeah. But, uh, you know... So, which, so what, mm. what we need to know is somebody should put up their hand um, as being the person who decided they should stay on the outside and not move in when things became rough because they got really rough and they would have seen it unfolding in front of their eyes. They should have given the instruction to move in, um, but they didn't. So, yeah. You mentioned uh, Michael quick, uh, Michael Wood. Of course, he's the river of filth guy, so he's not popular amongst I know, people. I know. And, and that hasn't done. aged well either. Very smarmy, nasty thing to say. He's also the immigration minister. And it turned out that Posey Parker was interrogated or stopped, delayed at immigration on arrival in the country for two and a half hours. Now, is that a coincidence when you've got the immigration minister, who I think made some uh, pretty negative comments about her, saying that what she stands for is repugnant, I think was the word he used, about a week and a half before she arrived or in the week um, running up. And uh, and here you have her being delayed. They knew she was coming. They knew what it was all about. Why would you delay? I know we're getting into the weeds a bit, but why would you delay someone in, in that situation? What, because you can? to intimidate well, them, to slow them down. Uh, he's the same guy. Maybe it all came from him. Yeah, we, you, you can't tell, right? Yeah, but so, in the absence you know, of any probing or any questions, we've got a right to speculate. No, that's right. Well, this is the thing. There should have been probing. There should have been questions, you know. The Minister of Customs or whoever it is, uh, you know, at the airport who runs the... Um, the searches at the airport, they should have been asked, you know, why was this lady detained? You know, now some of it um, they won't be able to talk about because it'll be about a, a person and, and from memory I think that some of that stuff is, is out of bounds. But um, you can still ask questions about, um, you know, whether authority had been given um, about, you know, when a plane arrives or something like You could find a way to try and probe into it to find out Again, on whose authority, on whose instruction did these things happen? And uh, what what it tells us, though, is it tells us that, you know, it's bad things happened that day all over the place. And, you know, what it seems is that it was politically motivated. And um, and that's a pretty shocking indictment, you know, of of the... Of the government of the day, if they allowed that sort of stuff to go on. Well, I was just thinking while you're talking, and um, and you mentioned uh, when we were discussing the sort of the political parties earlier and the, and the media holding them to account. There was that piece of video from the Herald of Jacinda Ardern agreeing and saying, stating 
that uh, we now had a two-tier society. I never thought I'd hear that in my life in this country. Never. I was out on the street, Springbok tour, because of apartheid. And um, I never thought I'd hear that. But here's the thing. No one said, hey, hey, wait on. What did you just say? Sorry, say that again? Did you actually say that? I just let it go. And it's probably one of the most... Um, Oh, I can't even think of a word. I, I can't think of any politician bareface saying that ever. Mm. No, it's um, and this is the problem, you know. Um, you know, I read just under Ardern's speech in Parliament, her valedictory, and you know, it was was an, it's interesting because it tells you stuff about the lady that you probably didn't know, but you know. There was no hint that she has created such a divided society. And this is the trouble. You know, in a way, she asked, you know, how she wondered how she would be remembered. Well, her legacy is that she has created a divided New Zealand like no other politician ever. And some of it has been, you know, her commitment to identity politics. And so, you know, everybody's divided on race, on gender, on sexuality, on, you know, every other slipping thing. And and then, of course, the vaccine mandates came along where she, you know, knowingly said, you know, we will be dividing society into the good people and the bad people. And so it goes on. And so you've got a fracture right down the middle of us as a country that we never had before. And I think the key thing for the future is we need politicians who are going to heal what she has created, what her government has created. And Hipkins came into the job and he seemed to imply that he was going to heal the wounds and make things better. And, you know, he threw out some legislation that people didn't like, but he's not healing anything. You know, he, he it's all superficial. And so it's going to be up to future governments to actually see if they can unite this country again. And it's very difficult because Labour has put in some major legislative changes that will need to be reversed if there's going to have if we're going to have any hope of unifying New Zealand once again. You know, I spent um, a few years living in America and, and one of the things I used to love about America was their patriotism. And I've always felt, living in New Zealand, that, you know, we've lacked that, being able to stand so proud of, of the country. Now, we do when, you know, we win in Olympic medals and so on. Um, so there are certain times where we forget about everything else and we are very patriotic. But it's sort of like the unity that, that other politicians in other countries are able to invoke from their populations. You know, that doesn't happen here. Because of biculturalism, you know, we are meant to be a separate country, you know, Maori and non-Maori. And, and, and it's just wrong, I think, what's happened to this country because it's got a lot worse under this administration. I think you make a very good point about patriotism because what that ends up being is a belief in your, in your country, in your fellow country people, a, a belief, a positive belief. When that goes... What do you have? You, <laughs> you, you got nothing. And I'm, I'm thinking, as some of us, including you, I'm sure, are old enough to remember, you know, a generation that that fought for this freedom. They're not around now, maybe one or two. Um, but I remember the World War One veterans. They were still alive when I was 
you know, growing up, and and they were still attending Anzac services, and that was all about fighting for the freedom. Was it all yeah. for? I know I'm sort of going on a bit, but is it all for all for nothing? I don't want to feel that it's all for nothing. That those that suffering and that you know that that willingness to die for your freedom sort of kind of means nothing anymore. No, well, and this is the problem. So, in general, governments want to unite the public, don't they? They 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 do stand for unity, and uh, they see the future as one where we're all pulling together. I think this, what's happened under this regime, is has been quite extraordinary, where division, which which um, you know the the politics of identity politics is all about, where that has dominated the agenda. And what it's done is it's empowered all these groups, um, you know, which which possibly needed uh, some assistance anyway, but, but what it's done is they've all got the bit between their teeth and they're going hell for leather um, until the election. And, of course, what we're seeing is not pretty because all of a sudden anybody speaks out against any of the agendas that are being pushed so strongly onto the country and you get viciously attacked. And so what we've been thinking is that, you know, the the Human Rights Act and the, the Bill of Rights protects our freedom of expression. And the Human Rights Act has been designed to uh, stop people picking on groups, you know, by um, race. They, uh, did they bring it in? Um, oh, no, they were thinking of bringing in religion as well. But it was to stop you attacking um, a group of people. Well, what we now need is we need some safeguards for individuals who are speaking out so that you can't be attacked and threatened and that you'll lose your job and all the other nasty things that, you know, be cancelled. And so we were wondering whether in the future there's room for a a free speech commission. I mean, I'm normally against bigger government, you know, more departments and and so on. But I'm sort of, we're sort of thinking that right now we've got to a point where individuals are being silenced because they're afraid. and, And that's right up and down the country. And if we had a free speech commission, whose purpose was to make sure that you as an individual had a right to say what you wanted and that you couldn't be attacked. And if you were attacked, you could complain to them and they could get to the bottom of who it was attacking you. Because it goes back to something we talked about earlier, that oftentimes the the vicious attacks come from a small group of very dedicated people. And so, you know, it wouldn't probably take much to be able to track them down and say, look, you're going too far, you know, desist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whether it would work or not, I don't know. But, but the point is that at the moment we're all sitting there like stunned mullets. All this is going on. We feel, feel powerless to do anything about it. And I think what we, what we have to start doing is thinking of ways to overcome it. Now, the police, uh, the Crimes Act, actually stops people harassing you and it stops a lot of this but it's at a different level isn't it it's where they're threatening to kill you or or, you know where it's it's a criminal offense what they're threatening and and what we're thinking of is something a little bit lower down um so that you know i mean I, i read the other day that a lot of chief executives nowadays 
are afraid to say anything about some of the silly things that are going on in their organisations because if they do, then the the diversity, you know, manager or the Inquisition. Um, human rights manager or whatever might complain against them to the board. And so all of a sudden their future is threatened as well. And so they sit by and do nothing and probably think, God, look what's happened, um, but feel powerless to do anything because they too are worried for the future. Well, how and does, that's wrong. What's how, happening is wrong. How does a free speech commissioner, though, stop the government institutions who are the ones who are behind a lot of the cancelling I know that you know they'd have to be so independent um, from government but yet still have teeth exactly yeah that's it and and that will be the independence of these organisations will be a, a major issue however that shouldn't stop the idea I think no fair enough I think that if a government came in and they thought, like we do, that it's all gone too far, then I'm sure that, you know, good brains will be able to come up with some safeguards. And at least what what often happens, of course, is that once you start talking about these things and once people in positions of authority say, look, it's got gone too far, then oftentimes you find that it gets paired back anyway because people realise that, hang on a minute, maybe we have overstepped the mark and, you know, we don't want government sort of coming down on our heads. And so so there's a lot of self-regulation goes on. I think at the moment it's like a free-for-all, go for it, you know, and, and that's dangerous. I think it's really dangerous what's happening right now. Okay, so to wind up, it's election year. It's been fantastic and fascinating hearing your views, by the way. Um, uh, Dr. Muriel Newman, we're talking with at the moment on Reality Check Radio. So, okay, it's election year. Who, who knows how that that's going to go? Um, and it, it might come a bit early. You know, some people think that that might be the case. Um, we'll see. But how long do you think? You know, we can go on like this. Uh, look, if if the government doesn't change. We will go on like this, but it will get a whole lot worse. If we think this is bad, it won't be anything like it will be when you've got the radical Green Party and the radical Maori Party in there egging them on. <laughs> and like, so, so what you think to yourself is whatever happens, we absolutely, for the sake of this country, to save New Zealand, we actually have to have a change in government because I tell you what, after another three years of this, we won't have a democracy left. It will be uh, a backwater. People will leave. It just doesn't even bear thinking about. Three years. So, well, another three. If, if another they get three in for another it. three yeah. years. Yeah, that's not long. That, 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 that's why I sounded surprised. That, that's, that goes past in a flash. But you look at how much they've changed now. Like I said, I think... At the moment, this government is running a co-governance agenda. From what I understand, every piece of policy has to be approved as to whether or not it abides by the partnership requirement, new requirement, by the way, made-up requirement of the Treaty of Waitangi. And so, you know, it, 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 and we even saw before um, Christmas, we saw situations where Nanaya Mahuta was making up 
legislation in the House changing laws that hadn't been approved by part by Cabinet that the Prime Minister didn't know anything about and she was pushing it through. Now, if that isn't somebody who thinks they're in co-governance doing that, I don't know what on earth it is. So I've seen the signs there which are really quite frightening and what I know if, if you've got the Maori Party and the Greens in there as well, you know, it will just get worse. Terrible. So, yes, so we need a change in government. And the best thing everybody can do is get that word out there. And no matter what, we need to change the government. And no matter what they promise and all the rest of it, the future of this country is far too important. We have to change the government. Dr Muriel Newman, thank you so much for making some time for us on Reality Check Radio. Really interesting hearing what you had to say. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciated it. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.